nurturing personal holiness this morning. And let's start by looking at 1 Peter for just a minute, where we find a command to be holy. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, 15, verses 14, 15, and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now when we hear the word holy, it brings many things to many people's minds, depending upon your background. For some of us it brings bund hair, long skirts and black stockings. For others of us it brings a holier-than-thou attitude where everything you do is wrong if it's not exactly what I do the way I do it and when I do it. For others, it brings to mind a kind of a cosmic killjoy attitude where you can't do anything because it's not holy. So don't do it. And I guess we can begin to foster some negative feelings or impressions about the command, be holy. And I'd like to challenge that just briefly almost by way of introduction, with a few examples of people who are not holy. And as you consider the absence of holiness, re-examine your impressions about holiness and decide maybe again for yourself if holiness isn't really the, not only the only option because it's commanded of the Lord, but it's the best option. In our foundations class, we were talking about a man who called me on the phone when I was pastoring at Grace Community Church. He called me from out of state and told me his story. Young boy, prayed to receive Jesus Christ, went on up into high school, didn't live the things of the Lord, but chose instead to be deeply involved in pornography, sex, sex, and music, to the point where it just absolutely consumed his life. Finally, he got straightened out a little bit, got married, just briefly into his marriage a couple of years, and he reverted back to all the same stuff. And he called and he was weeping on the phone. He says, I, I, I can't, I think I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin, he said. I said, you, why is that? What is that? He says, well, I can't pray anymore. I said, why not? He says, because every time I get on my knees and I close my eyes to pray to Jesus, I see a naked Jesus. And it, I can't stand it, so I can't pray. He involved himself so consistently and so regularly in the process of pornography and fornication and later adultery that normal words, normal words that he'd see in his office place because of association with all that had gone before brought about horrendously pornographic thoughts and visions and now it even affected his inability to pray. Another poor, sick person, unholy, walked into my office area when I was a pastor again at Grace Church he walked in and said I am Jesus Christ and our secretary wisely who greeted him asked him if she could see his palms <laughs> at which time he put his hands in his pockets and said no he says but I am the Jesus the Christ the Son of God and I have come to save you from your sins and my buddy and I were playing computer basketball in my office <laughs> And it was just interesting enough that we quit and looked out and she kind of threw up a flag for help and so we called him in and he sat down and began to tell us how he was Jesus. This is sick. This poor man believed this. Well, he left that day because we had a few things to say otherwise, but later he came back with a beautiful Jack Daniels um, bottle of booze. It was empty. 
course, because he'd emptied it. But he wanted us to see the wonderful insignia on the, on the bottle, and he just gave that to us as a gift. And then he went out again, and we never saw him again. Be holy, because God is holy. Or in New York City, and our Mr. America encounter. You, you, have you heard about him yet, Kelly? Did you tell him? We ran into a guy who thought he was Mr. America. He said the flag was God. He had lots of proof for that. And if that wasn't going to do it, then President Reagan was God. And if President Reagan died, then Kelly better get ready because Kelly was going to be God. <laughs> and we kept saying, what do you mean that's not God? God's in heaven. God's a spirit. You can't see God. He says, yes, you can. You want to see God? I'll show you God. So he dropped his pants around the spot. Showed us God. <laughs> right there in the open public square. Showed us God right there by dropping his pants. Bible says, be holy. Bible says, be holy. There were the other bums that we saw in New York. And then we had lost his mind, obviously. Other bums, we'd walk by the streets and we'd see these men, some young, some old, absolutely filthy, dirty. You've seen them with matted hair and old clothes and smelling of alcohol. Their lives were completely wasted as they laid in the gutter. God says, be holy. Howard Hughes, amassing an enormous fortune. Money beyond even our greatest comprehension, but so paranoid by his own sin, he was afraid that at every turn of the road he'd get sick. So he lived inside of a little sterile bubble. Couldn't go anywhere. Destroyed his life. Alan David Saxon, president of Bullion Reserve of North America at 39 years of age, went into his sauna. But before he did that, he hooked up his little Yamaha scooter with a hose so that it would asphyxiate him. Walked in there and killed himself. By breathing the fumes. Because he cheated with all everybody else's money. They gave it to him, his bullion. They bought bullion and he said he'd store it in the mountains of, I don't know, Colorado or Utah. And he took all their money, millions and millions of dollars, and traded it on high-risk options in the stock market. Made about $15 million in six months because he hit the right things at the right time. And then lost not only all of his profit, but all of their bullion. And had absolutely nothing for them, so he killed himself. God says, be holy. All of a sudden, this word holy is taking on wonderful meaning. I like it. Because I don't want to live like Mr. America. I don't want to live like David Allen Saxon, who has no integrity and uses other people's money for his own personal gain, finds it doesn't work, and kills himself. Went to lunch with a buddy the other day, an older man. Told me about his son, who's about 30 years old. His son's an absolute loser. He's been that way ever since he was born. Just a real jerk. His dad has supported him all of his life. And now he's about 30, 32 years old. He's married, has two kids, and he can't get off the alcohol. Doesn't even have a job. Absolute wasted life. And God says, be holy. Be holy. Why not? I mean, what's the option? We look at the allures of sin. We look at the invitations of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and they look so wonderful to us until we've tasted them and they've killed and destroyed us. And then suddenly those things aren't worth anything anymore, and sin is the passing pleasures of sin for a season, it says. And then it comes back and it bites our head off. You feel that in your own life, even as a Christian? Man, I hate sin. I hate it in my life. It's there, but I hate it. Do you hate sin in your life? 
you feel the impulses of your flesh and you bend your knee and your heart and your mind and your will to consent to sin and you enjoy it for a moment and then you realize what you've done and you've sold yourself you've compromised you've involved yourself in something that only has temporary momentary pleasure and more importantly than all that you have violated the very God who died for you you send in his face I hate it. But God says, be holy. God says, be holy. He commands us to be holy. What a wonderful thing. Possibly one of the most blessed commandments found in all of Scripture. Because to be holy is to be morally blameless. Morally blameless. It's to be separated from sin. <laughs> separated. Think of it. Separated from sin. The only thing that can hurt you, the only thing that can destroy you is sin. God says be separated from it. Consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the contact, excuse me, and the conduct befitting those who are separated. Be holy. Be separated from sin and let your activities be distinguished as those who are separated from sin I've sinned this week in ways that I'd be embarrassed to tell you ashamed to mention and I'm sick of it I hate it let's be honest how about you are you fighting with sin in your life because if you're not even fighting goodness that's the worst place to be. If you're not even fighting sin in your life, pray that God in this chapel time will cause you to hate your sin enough to fight it. But if you are fighting it, and maybe you're tired, and maybe you've lost, maybe it wasn't the best week of your life, could I encourage you this morning by asking you to turn to Romans chapter 6? Let's remind ourselves this morning of how to fight against sin how to pursue holiness and my basic statement to you this morning is this our greatest battle against sin or for holiness depending on how you want to say it our greatest battle against sin or for holiness is the one we will fight now watch this to believe that we are dead to sin. That sounds confusing to you? Hold on a little bit. We may bring light. The greatest battle we will fight for holiness is the fight we must fight. And here it is, the most important part. To believe that I am dead to sin. You, if you are a believer, are dead to sin. That is a fact. That is a biblical fact, which I will support here in just a minute. And the hardest part of living a holy life is believing and acting upon that biblical truth. I am dead to sin. Let's look at Romans 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves 
to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, in order to feel the full import of those verses, let's go back to Romans chapter 1 for just a second and we'll try to find the flow of the book. What's going on in this book at this point? 118, Romans 118, God says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he says, why? Because that which is known about God is evident from within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. The wrath of God. Stop right there. The wrath of God. Chapter one. The wrath of God is upon all men. You say that's not fair. It can't be against all men. Why not? Because they all haven't heard about Jesus and they all can't go to heaven unless they know about Jesus. What about the Hindu who's never even heard of the Bible? God says they are without excuse because my attributes are proclaimed to them through the creation. They are accountable to me for their behavior. Then it goes on to describe those poor souls who reject what they can know about God through creation. They begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. And God gives them over three times there in Romans 1, first of all, to heterosexuality, verse 26, to homosexuality, verse 28, to a depraved mind, a mind without a mind, a mind which approves that which is wrong, knowing that it is wrong. Just approves it. I love it. Eat it up. See there, verse 32, they not only do the same, they not only do these evil things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Chapter 1. Hard message. All you people out there running around in, in, in grossly immoral lives, whether you know of the Bible, whether you know of Jesus or not, you are accountable to Him and His wrath will come upon you because He is evident to you through creation. Chapter 2, we confront the Jewish moralist. I'm a good person, you see, because I am the tribe of Abraham. Verse 28 of chapter 2. For he is not a Jew. You see, his whole argument here is that because I'm a Jew, because I have the circumcision, because I have the covenant, because I have all of these things, the wrath of God is not upon me. This is the person who's the goody two-shoes, the moralist. He's not running out getting drunk. He's not a homosexual. He's not committing adultery. He's a very moral person. Doesn't steal, doesn't cheat. Doesn't do a lot of the things on the outside that look sinful. In this chapter, Paul just, just destroys the man. No, no, no. You are guilty too. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So he covers both kinds of people in the world. The immoral person, the openly, grossly sinful person, and the self-righteous person. Both kinds of people, that's the only kind of people there are in the world, they're both under the wrath of God. That's summarized in verse 10 of chapter 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become useless. There is none who does good. There is none, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips and on it goes. 
He brings the entire human race under the law, under sin. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, the first part there says that a very simple thing, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he says the bad news is this, pal. Everybody on the face of the earth is, just, is justly bound for hell. Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law of the prophets. Now watch. Even the righteousness of God through faith. So there in the middle of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul introduces the fact that yes, we're all bound to hell, but through faith, the righteousness of God. Salvation. So if faith is the issue, if faith in Jesus Christ is the issue which forgives me for my sins, what about that faith? That's chapter 4. What kind of faith? The faith of Abraham, verse 18, who in hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. His wife was too old. He was too old to have children. God says, I'm going to give you a nation of people that are greater than the number of the stars. And in hope against hope he believed it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Chapter 4 clarifies what kind of faith it is. It's faith that believes in God to do that which is physically impossible. Forgive me for my sins. Chapter 5 clarifies what happens as a result of our faith. Verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. So there you've got it. Chapter 1, the immoral person condemned under the wrath of God. Chapter 2, the moral person on the outside looks real good. God says it's not a matter of your externals, it's a matter of your heart. You're condemned to sin too. Chapter 3, the beginning of it says, Therefore, the whole world is accountable to God, but through faith you can have forgiveness. What kind of faith? Abraham's faith, chapter 4. What's the consequence of that faith? Peace with God. You're kind of moving through Christian experience, aren't you? I mean, we got saved. Now I'm at peace. What happens next? I have to fight again, don't I? I don't fight God. I'm at peace with God, but I'm at war with sin. Chapter 6. How can I beat the battle against sin? How can I live a successful Christian life? against sin see it there in 6 1 what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace might increase he's kind of building off an argument he already had they said well listen if every time I sin God adds more grace because where sin abounds grace thus much more abound that's a very biblical thing to say right I can't sin too much for God to forgive me no matter how much I sin God's got more grace for my sin and every time I sin more God gives me more grace because he forgives me for my sin so they say hey God is glorified by his great grace so why don't I just keep sinning all my life I'll just keep cranking out all the sin I can possibly do because the more I sin the more grace God gives and the more grace God gives the more glory he gives stupid reasoning but that's the question that's being answered. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. And here it is. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you feel dead to sin? I mean, be honest. Do you feel dead to sin? When you feel like gossiping and you've got this choice morsel that will penetrate that person's ears and light their eyes up. Do you feel dead to that? Or do you feel alive to that? 
When you make a commitment to lose 10 pounds, do you feel dead to the lust of the flesh and the desire to eat? Do you feel that way? When you make a commitment to study and get certain grades and not procrastinate and use your time in a self-disciplined manner, do you feel dead to the temptation to do something other than that and waste your time? Or do you feel very much alive to it? I feel very much alive to sin. But the Bible tells me that I am dead to it. How'd that happen? Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that's number one. That our body of sin might be done away with, that's number two. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now write this down. When it says that my old self was crucified, what does that mean? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We know that, don't we? When, was I, when did I die to sin? What does it say there? When, knowing that our old self was crucified with Him. Do you know that it's a biblical fact which neither you and I can feel nor experience nor remember? But that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you somehow, because God does not, is not limited by time, you and I were there with Him and we died on the cross with Him. I don't remember that. That's what the Bible tells me. I was crucified. My old self was crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. What is that old self? What is the old self? It's the man you once were. You were born a sinful person with a sinful nature. That sinful nature that nobody, you know, we've said this in class, nobody had to teach my daughter how to sin, right? Nikki's got that down all on her own. Never trained her up in that, apart from my bad example, which I'm sure has some influence on her. But basically, she was born, equipped, ready, full-time expert at sin. So were you. So was I. It's a part of the fall. It's a consequence of the fall, right? What the Bible is saying here is that that innate nature, that old self, that man that we are when we are born at the point of our salvation is somehow crucified on the cross in Jesus Christ. It is dead. You do not have, as a makeup of your essential nature, your prevailing disposition, you do not have, biblically speaking, a sinful prevailing disposition. That is not you. You are new in Christ. You've heard me say these words. You are new in Christ. You have been created a new creature. Ephesians, I think it's 4.23, says that you are, have been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. My old self is dead. I have been created into a new creature. My new prevailing disposition is, has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. 2 Peter 1.4, you've heard me say this. I am a partaker of the divine nature. My new prevailing, what I mean by prevailing is the constant, regular, prevailing winds, you know, the and disposition, my basic attitude. The new prevailing disposition of the New Testament believer is that of a partaker of the divine nature. That is who you really are. The hardest battle you will ever fight against sin is believing that truth. It is not self-evidencing. It is not apparent to me as I feel my impulses. 
It is a biblical truth I must apprehend from reading the words of Scripture and entrusting myself to it. So, first of all, my old self has been crucified. The man I once was. And it has been replaced, as we support that with other scriptures, with a new nature, a divine nature. Such that the real me, the prevailing disposition of the New Testament Christian is to want and desire the things of God. What else happened? Verse 6. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be, what? Done away with. That our body of sin might be done away with. The word done away with appears in Hebrews 2.14. Let's get a grip on what this mean, word means. See, that's my body of sin, man. That's my flesh. That's that stuff that I feel. What happened to that? Hebrews 2.14. Since then the children share in the flesh and blood. <clears throat> he himself... Likewise, also partook of the same, Jesus did. That through death, now watch, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he rendered, and that's the word, rendered powerless the devil. Same exact word as done away with in Romans 6.6, 6, where it says that my body of sin might be done away with. Now let's consider the sense in which it is true to say that Satan has been rendered powerless. When we say that Satan has been rendered powerless, are we saying that he is no longer of any power or consequence at all? No, that's not true. We know very much that Satan is alive and powerful, enormously destructive. So much so that the angels do not even rebuke him in their own name, but in the name of Jesus. Satan, the greatest of all God's creation, the powerful angel, still enormously powerful. In what sense then is Satan rendered powerless? He is not, and this is the answer to that question, in absolute control. He does what he does by permission. He is within the permissive will of God. He is not separate and distinct. He does not have absolute power. He is not the author of his own destiny. He works within a framework of reality that is far beyond himself. He is not in absolute control. That fact rendered by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? So Satan didn't go away. Satan has not been annihilated. Satan is not, no, is not without influence. He is all of those things. Most importantly, though, he is without absolute power and control. Now, let's bring that meaning into our Romans 6, 6 passage. Where it says that our body of sin might be what? Done away with. Could have been translated rendered powerless. Does it start to make sense now? My body of sin, my flesh hasn't gone away. I still feel it. I still am drawn to sin by it. But here's the question. Is it in absolute control? No, it's not. That has been taken away from it by my association and actual death and resurrection in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the import of this. First of all, I am no longer inherently, innately evil. That has been crucified. I have a new nature. 
created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. So there's my inside. That's my ontology. That's who I am. That's my prevailing disposition. You say, why do I still feel like I want to sin? I say, because you're caught in your flesh. You're caught in your flesh. That's the body of sin. It cries out to the lusts of the world. Is it an absolute control? No, it's not. It has been done away with. Properly translated, rendered powerless. Why? It's the third thing in that passage, verse 6, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You see, think of it in the inverse. Think of Mr. America. Think of Howard Hughes. Think of all the other examples that we gave at the beginning of this talk. All of those men had as their prevailing disposition evil and sin, and they lived it. All of those men had a body of sin, the second thing in Romans 6, and it was in control. It was the dictating agent. He was not at liberty to say no to his flesh on a characteristic basis. He was under the dominion of sin. And as a result, he was a slave to sin. Feeling as though he controlled his life, but obviously not. As a believer, God says, be holy. God says, leave that stuff behind. And you say, how in the world, God, am I going to do that? And he says, look in Romans 6, 6, and find that in your death and resurrection, you have a new nature. That the body of sin that impels and pulls and would lead you on to sin is not in absolute control. Certainly it has influence in your life and you can feel its impulses, but it cannot dictate your action. And why have I given you these things, the Lord says, so that you should not be a slave to sin. So those are the facts. That's the biblical facts about what happens when we get saved and how that relates to our, what we call sanctification. That is fact. Now the issue is this. Back to what I said earlier. The hardest part about winning the battle over sin is believing that's true. Because frankly, it doesn't feel that way, right? just doesn't feel that way to me. I wasn't there on the cross. I don't remember myself dying. I can't see my new nature. And I'll tell you, I can sure feel my flesh. So it's very, very hard for me to believe that these things are true. That's why verse 11. Look at it. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider is the very, very first command in this entire book. We're now six chapters and 11 verses into this whole book, and he has not told us to do anything yet. Nothing. Hasn't told us to do a thing. He just told us about the immoral man being under the wrath of God. Then he told us about the moral man being under the wrath of God. Then he told us about how the whole world is under the wrath of God. Then he told us about faith and how you can be justified. Then he qualified what kind of faith in Abraham. And then he said you're at peace with God in chapter 5. He hasn't told us to do one cotton-picking thing. And then he clarified what happened to us in our nature and our flesh in the point of salvation. And finally, in verse 11 of chapter 6, he finally tells us to do something. And it's not even an action. You can't do it with your hands or your legs or your feet. You must do it right here. You must reckon. Even so, consider. The word consider is a mathematical term. It means to add up the facts. 
add up the facts. 2 plus 2 equal 4. Yep, that's what it says. The concept implies an ability of the reason. Watch. Which starting with ascertainable facts draws a logical conclusion, especially a mathematical one or one pertaining to business where calculations are essential. Run your business without proper mathematical calculations and you'll find yourself out of business. Watch. Run your Christian life without making these essential calculations and adding up these facts, you will find yourself losing in that life. Plato used that word, consider. He used it for the unaffected emotions, for thought unaffected by emotions. The ability to think clearly apart from the fact of my emotions or how I feel. Seeks to grasp the object of facts and apply them to the problem. That's how Plato used it. To consider then or to reckon is to set your feelings aside, set your emotions aside and say, now wait a minute, there are some clearly discernible facts here apart from the way I feel about them. I must apprehend these facts and I must act upon these facts. Point in case. I'm, I'm trying to lose weight, for example. I personally am not. It probably should be, but I'm not. So I make a commitment to lose weight. And you know what happens when you make that commitment. Everything in the world becomes the most appetizing item you've ever seen in all your life. The refrigerator calls your name from around the corner. You can't even see the thing. You're driving down the road. You never knew there were this many fast food restaurants on this street. Right? I mean, everything in you wants something fattening to eat. You can... Feel it. You could even convince yourself that you want it from the deepest longings of your soul. Right? That's how you feel. But Romans 6.11 says, you are to consider. You are to, you are to take the, the obvious evident facts, remove your feelings from your perception of those facts and act upon those facts. So that means you've got to come back over here. You got to say, what are the facts? Well, the facts are, I'm crucified in Christ. My old nature is dead. So it's not a deep longing of the real me. That's not really me. What is it? It's my flesh. Because that's all that the New Testament writer ever struggles with when he struggles with sin. If you'll examine it in Romans 7 and other places, it's always and only exclusively his flesh, his humanness. What did not get changed in, in the redemptive process is yet to be glorified. He says, all it is is my flesh. It's my old habits. It's the desires of my flesh. Well, what about my flesh? My flesh has been rendered powerless. It's not in control. I don't have to submit to it so that I don't have to be its slave. That's the hardest part about living a holy life, remembering that fact. Removing the emotions and acting upon fact. Listen to Diedrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian. Hmm, heavy quote here. Cost of discipleship and under the heading of temptation. He says this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. 
It makes no difference if it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge. Joy in God is extinguished within us and we seek all our joy in ourselves. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. Lust aroused envelops the mind and will. In deepest darkness, the powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within us rises up against the Word of God. It is Satan's greatest tactic not to cause you to hate God nor the things of God, but simply to forget Him at the point of temptation and what He has done for you. Francis Schaeffer says this in the New Spirituality, Beware! Neither experience nor emotion is the basis of faith. The basis of our faith is that certain things are true. The whole man, including the intellect, is to act upon the fact that certain things are true. We must first stress that the basis of our faith is neither experience nor emotion, but truth, as God has given it in verbalized propositional form in the Scriptures, and which we first of all apprehend with our minds, though of course the whole man must act upon. Would you do me the favor of making personal application of this truth in your life? By thinking of the sin which most often besets you, possibly the one that besets you before you made it to chapel this morning, possibly the one that you indulged in over the weekend, possibly the one that wiped out your previous week, please grab that specifically, name it in your mind right now. Let me just try to help give example personally in your own life. I want this to be clear. You know as well as I do now that you have that sin firmly fixed in your mind that there are times in your life when you feel that that is the most important thing you could possibly do. There is no alternative. You cannot escape it. It always gets you. It always comes back. It's always there. And the only way to avoid it or to get rid of it is to yield to it. Give in to it. it seems to be the only alternative. Now, that's how you feel about it. Very natural, very common. The Bible says that you must remove your feelings from the issue and consider the facts from Scripture. They are, number one, that you were not created for that in Christ. You have a new nature. The old person in you that longs and desires to do that has been crucified, replaced with a new... You must remember that. I mean, literally, I don't want to be too pedantic here, but that's true. At the point of temptation, you must shut the feelings off and say, hold it. I'm a new creature in Christ. The real me has a divine nature created in holiness and righteousness of the truth designed to give glory to God. And my truest inclination, though I cannot feel it at this moment, is to live to God's glory. Number one, you must say that to yourself. You must believe that it is true based upon the words of Scripture. Number two, that our body of sin might be done away with. You must say to yourself, I am not under the power of my flesh. My flesh has been rendered and taken away from it, its absolute power. In other words, I can say no. You ever feel like you can't say no to sin? You stop and you say, no, 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 that's a lie right out of the pit. 
I can say no. Because biblical fact says that my body of sin is no longer in absolute control. I am in the Spirit of God. You must consider it. Consider yourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Verse 12 and 13 in closing. Because of this consideration based upon the facts of verse 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. You know, it's possible that you and I, for periods of time, can allow sin to reign in our bodies. And it says there, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Think of sin as some God and you're coming to sin and you're presenting the members of your body saying, I worship you, sin. I give myself to you, sin. Take my life and use it for your purposes, O mighty one of sin. That's the picture. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But instead, you see, here's the wonderful thing. Present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's power here. Because this is biblical truth. This can change your life. This can make you live holy. This can free you from the bondage of sin. This can give purpose and meaning to your life. I pray that it will. Let's pray.